This is Over the Culture Podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like goofy hoes, and I'm your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, Reefer Sutherland, Luke Fly Talker, the most interesting lyric in podcasting, the troller of trolls, the prince of petty, Steve G. It's October 23rd, 2022, and I tell you people, October must be you got Steve fucked up month because just over the week, uh, a- another perpetrator, a- another fucking goofy, a-, a goofball, word to Cat Williams, another fucking goofball tried me. And, you know, I, I-, I talked about previously reporting someone in HR at Amazon and uh, you know that gentleman lost his job and you know I'm not losing sleep over it I don't take joy or pleasure in it but um you know that that tells me it, it couldn't have just been my report uh, to HR that cost him his job there had to have been a case several motherfuckers had to report his bitch ass um, you know I, I wish him well uh, on his journey or whatever but uh, another human being another fucking goofball came and tried me and it was just so unnecessary um, I, I didn't like the tone I didn't like the way they addressed me they were talking to me as if I was special needs and uh, this hungry hungry hippo of a heifer this time it's a female and I use the term female loosely this female she was talking to me in such a condescending tone. Steven, that's not how we do it, Steven. And this fucking warthog, I've never disrespected her. I don't clock in. I don't put money into gas and I don't put gas into my car and use it up to go to a place to be disrespectful. I I come here to show up and show out. I clock in and I do my work. I'm familiar with the routine shift by shift. You don't even have to tell me twice. You don't have to tell me once. You know, when you're looking for Stephen Garrett, when you do find him, you're going to find him working, doing a thing that's required of him on this shift. So with that being said, uh, I don't warrant disrespect from anyone, from any fucking one, whether you're my direct manager, the area manager or any kind of fucking manager that that is supposedly a leader, a supervisor, whatever. Um, I address people with respect, even if you're a douchebag piece of shit, goofy bitch. I give it. Therefore, I expect it. And I make this real easy for people. You don't even have to respect me back. You don't. Especially if you're a piece of shit person. Fuck you and your bullshit true value fucking respect. I don't, I don't care. But just don't disrespect me. Just don't disrespect me. And that is really easy. That's easier than having to respect me. Because this person that's working hard and giving you respect, all he requires is for you to not disrespect him. Don't be in my way. Don't come at me with no goofy shit. Now, the the situation over the week, I was uh, doing my job like I do when I'm on the fucking clock, minding my goddamn business, tending to the business that pays me. And uh, this fucking hungry, hungry heifer, she just came up to me and told me that I was doing this thing wrong. 
that this activity uh, required of me in my shift. She said that I was doing wrong and I needed to do it a certain way. And I I don't want to get too far into details, but I just went along with it, knowing that like what I was doing wasn't in the wrong wasn't in the wrong nah, nah, nah the thing that i was doing is something that i do every fucking time she just happened to pull her fucking fat fucking cart up next to me and tell me no steven and she said it in that tone and i had to stop her i had to check her and correct her let's put this motherfucker in reverse and uh let's try this all over again shall we uh i don't come in here and i don't disrespect you why why warthog why are you addressing me like this? Like I'm special needs? Like I, I'm learning disabled? Like I was in the short class? Like I'm short bus shorty? I was pissed. That shit woke me up. I got my second win and I fucking went to town. The rest of that shift, I went to town. Fucking scan this, scan that. Boop, bleep, 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 bleep. Oh, it's time to go home. All right. See you all. Fuck this person. Uh, but this time around, I did not want to report anyone. I don't I don't come to work to make trips to HR. But on my end, I did do some due diligence. I told my supervisor. Then I told my direct manager. I told her about that whole fiasco and how I'm not trying to report another person, at least not anytime soon. You know, the last time I reported a motherfucker, the motherfucker lost his job. And I'm not in the uh, making people lose their job business. I'm not in the caring business. Only if my hand is forced, I address that person directly. I talk to that person directly. I told them what not to do when dealing with Stephen Garrett. And if it happens again, then I'll have to fucking get my Karen on, my black male Karen on, and take that motherfucker to HR. And we can go there together, hand in motherfucking hand, if we got to, if we got to. And, you know, I, like I said, I told my manager, she said she was going to address this fucking hungry, hungry heifer. And, uh, you know, ever since then, the fat bitch says, good morning, good morning, Steven. And I just, you know, morning, morning. Uh, Really, the bitch should not be speaking to me. The only thing that should be said to me is a fucking apology because I'm willing to accept it. I'll hear you out. Uh, But that's all we need to do. Just say you're sorry. You fucked up. You fucked up. You picked the right one on the wrong day. And, um, you know, your good mornings, put emphasis on that good. We're going to have a good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good shift, and uh, get the good fuck out of my way. Now, Outkast, I remember on one of their songs on Stankonia, they said, uh, we love these hoes. Ha 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 ha. We love these hoes. And I do. I love these hoes. They make the world go round. This world needs hoes. But... I prefer the freak hoes, the hoes of the freak variety, word the future. Goofy hoes, they need to stand back and do something with their lives. And that by that, I mean leaving Steven Garrett the fuck alone. You goofy hoes, goofy niggas too. You're not fucking exempt. Goofy niggas and goofy hoes, get the fuck out of my way. All right? Just like Iowa. Get the fuck out of here, Iowa. What what, what do you do? You you fucking deal with fucking fields and shit? What what are you known for, Iowa? Uh, You you got a field of dreams and that's it. What? You're the fucking Hawkeyes. I, I don't know 
anything else relevant about Iowa besides the fact that they got their ass handed to them by my Ohio State Buckeyes. 54 to 10. Get the fuck out of my face, you goofballs. On to the next. NFL's today. It's Sunday. It's fall on a Sunday. Who's your team playing? My team, the Cowboys of Dallas, they will be playing the Lions of Detroit in Dallas at the Jerry Dome. And um, let's not disappoint, please. let's, Let's not do this. Like Ike said to Tina, don't embarrass me, anime. Don't embarrass me, Dak. Don't embarrass me, Zeke. Don't embarrass me. Lost to those damn Eagles last Sunday, and that really grinds my gears, really shapes my dick, because uh, they're my least favorite NFL team of all time. I I hate them so much. I I just, I I can't stand to look at them having an undefeated record. Somebody's got to put a fucking L on these fucking, fucking fuckers. Fly high. I'm so sick of this on my timeline. I got friends from Ohio who are Eagles fans. I got a buddy from Houston who's an Eagles fan. I, I Apparently, I didn't know all these Eagles fans just came out of the fucking woodwork. Just fucking, ah. Uh. Hey, you, you got your one Super Bowl win and you, and you beat Tom Brady to do it. I, I give you props for that. Pop my collar to you. But after that, fuck off. Just like your Phillies can fuck off. I I don't really care too much about this uh, MLB playoffs. My team, the Tribe Called Guardians, they got eliminated. So on one side, you got the Astros, the fucking cheating ass Houston uh, trash can beating Astros uh, against the New York Stankies. And both of those teams can fuck off. On the other side, you got the fucking Phillies against the San Diego Padres. Well, shit. I guess since the Padres have never won anything, even when they had the greatest Padre of all time, Tony Gwynn, uh, they still couldn't win shit because it's the San Diego fucking Padres. I, I, I guess if I gotta pick a team, I go with them. I guess I gotta go with them. So San Diego, let's not disappoint. Um, but that's not looking good. Uh, on a brighter note, the NBA is back and um, I couldn't be any happier. The Cleveland Cavaliers with the new look, they got a... Donovan Mitchell, probably one of the best backcourts between him and Darius Garland. Uh, We got about three or four All-Stars. Got Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, Jared Allen, and uh, Evan Mobley. He's coming into his own. It's his second year, and we lost to the damn Raptors in the, the season opener, but bounced back and beat the Bulls on their own court. And I see the, the Cavs are playing the Wizards tonight who are undefeated. They're 2-0. and The Cavs are 1-1. So let's go Cleveland. On Thursday, Snoop Dogg releases another project called I Still Got It. And it's a collaborative uh, feature, a collaborative effort with DJ Drama. Uh, the infamous DJ Drama of the Gangsta Grill series. 
and uh, I, I feel like DJ Drama, we're, we're heading into somewhat of a renaissance where all of that stuff from the 2000s that was celebrated, especially the mid-2000s, is back again to get its roses, to get its flowers. And uh, it's, I feel like it is a 20-year rule. When, when things 20 years ago come back, it's cool again. And we're about at that mark. Uh, the Gangster Grill series, it, it kicked off, like I said, in the 2000s, uh, early to mid 2000s. And I've noticed DJ Drama, he's kind of resurfaced. Uh, he collaborated with uh, Tyler, the creator for his last album, which won a Grammy, uh, rightfully so. It was a great album. And uh, he's collaborating with Snoop Dogg for I Still Got It. And I Still Got It, if you like Snoop, you, you gotta listen to I Still Got It because it's Snoop in his element. Doing that West Coast uh, crip walking gangster shit. You know what I'm talking about? You know, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? But also, DJ Drama collaborated with Jeezy for his latest album that came out Friday. And Jeezy's album is called Snowfall. And god damn it, this album was for the 30 pluses. This album, Snowfall, was for those who remember this shit when they were in their early 20s. That trapper die shit, that recession shit, fucking <clears throat> out at the all-nighters going to the fucking two o'clock a.m. and don't close until sunrise fucking trapping fucking cooking the fucking pot god damn it i can't even find words this sunday afternoon but snowfall if you like any jeezy shit any of the jeezy shit this is one of his best albums jeezy's back i, I like this album better than his last one snowfall it's 17 tracks, 48 minutes and 17 seconds, uh, with features from Lil Durk and 42 Doug and ESTG. Uh, three younger guys, man, and, um, you know, not too many features, but Jeezy hold, he held it the fuck down. He holds his own on this, man. So, yeah, if you were ever a fan of the snowman, check out Snowfall. And also, uh, Armani Caesar, she's the Fem C of the Griselda gang. And her latest album, The Liz 2, that shit is a banger. I added, I added quite a few tracks of Liz 2 to the playlist. It's uh, 17 songs, 38 minutes and 7 seconds. So it's not that long. Uh, it's got at least a feature from just about every member of the Griselda crew. Uh, there's a track called Paula Dean featuring West Side Gun. Uh, there's a track called uh, $100 Hiccup featuring Stove God Cooks and Benny the Butcher and El Puro featuring Conway the Machine. There's also a feature from Kodak Black called Diana, and I liked all the tracks that I named. Um, and I mean, look, Armani Caesar, if you're not familiar, you're probably familiar with Benny the Butcher, West Side Gun, uh, Conway the Machine, uh, Stove God Cooks, or 38 Special, any of those guys from that crew. Uh, she's no different very talented she's in the pocket with all of her flow all of her lyricism the wordplay and you know they're not going to allow you in that crew if you're half-stepping so if you are a fan of any of those cats from the Griselda gang check out the Liz 2 by Imani Caesar and apparently young boy never broke again 
he released another project. I don't know how he does it. He finds time between going to jail uh, for miscellaneous reasons and going to the studio. I, I guess it's the pen and the pen for this young man uh but his latest album Ama, i got a family uh i have not listened to it because i don't know i don't know if i even feel like listening to it i i've listened to the last two albums he's put out this year um and i mean clearly the man stays busy um i saw something i don't know if it was a fake meme or if this shit is legit but he ties or he's over, he's he's either tied or eclipsed Jay-Z for number one albums on the Billboard in the past 20 years, I believe. It's something ridiculous, but I don't see it. Like I said before, I've gone on record to express uh, my confusion with his following. I, I It's like uh, Justin Bieber times Drake with this guy got people fucking chasing after him in malls chasing after him in concerts and just like i haven't seen anything of this nature since michael jackson in his prime in the 80s all those asian people just fucking fainting at the sight of the man and i people are doing this with this young boy never broke again um i don't know if i'm gonna listen to another of his albums fully again but hey man more power to you um keep making those babies but all things october 23rd in 1989, Michelet releases her debut self-titled album, Michelet. In 1991, House Party 2 premiered in theaters, a pajama jammy jam. In 1992, the films Dr. Giggles and Zebrahead premiered. In 1993, Too Short releases the album Get In Where You Fit In. In 1995, Def Leppard enters the Guinness Book of World Records by performing three shows in three continents in the same day playing in Tangier, Morocco, London, England, and Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. In 1998, Life is Beautiful in Pleasantville premiered in theaters, and also in 98, Britney Spears' debut single, Baby One More Time, is released. It would become the top-selling single of 1999, selling over 10 million units worldwide. It was also the biggest hit single of 1999. The Baby One More Time music video was ranked as number three on Billboard 2010 list of best music videos of all time. In 2001, Vanilla Ice releases the album Bipolar, <laughs> not buying it, uh, also in 01. DMX releases The Great Depression, classic, Incubus releases Morning View, and the first iPod is released by Apple Incorporated. In 2002, while driving home from a studio session, Kanye West falls asleep at the wheel and gets in a head-on crash, causing his jaw to be wired shut. And that man's life and the hip-hop world in general would never be the same again. In 2007, Bizarre releases Blue Cheese and Coney Island, Hurricane Chris releases 5150 Ratchet, Little Brother releases Get Back, and Trey the Truth releases Life Goes On. In 2011, WWE airs the pay-per-view Vengeance 11. In 2020, Seven Dust releases Blood and Stone, and Ty Dolla Sign releases featuring Ty Dolla Sign. But more important to me than all of that shit, in 1992, the same day Dr. Giggles and Zebrahead premiered in theaters, Quentin Tarantino releases his debut full 
feature-length movie, Reservoir Dogs. Oh my God. Reservoir Dogs. It became more popular retroactively because the follow-up to Reservoir Dogs was Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, which just swept every fucking award ceremony in 1994, 95. Uh, And because of the success of Pulp Fiction, people were like, oh, well, what else has he done, this Quentin Tarantino guy? So they look back at his filmography and they're like, oh, Reservoir Dogs, I gotta check that out. I wonder if that's any good. And I'm sure people were not unimpressed. I mean, hey, it's Quentin Tarantino, a young Quentin Tarantino in the 90s. And Reservoir Dogs, man, this made people who were just like B-list celebrities. It made them into leading men. Steve Buscemi, Tim Roth, Harvey Keitel. He was already a legend at this point, but Harvey Keitel, Lawrence Tierney, uh, Sean Penn's little brother, Chris Penn. Why, why do I gotta be Mr. Pink? Cause you're a fucking pussy. So yeah, let's pop our collar for Reservoir Dogs and the Quentin Tarantinos. Today in sports history, In 1886, at the World Championship Baseball Series at Sportsman's Park in St. Louis, the St. Louis Browns edge out the Chicago White Stockings 4-3 in 10 innings in Game 6 to take the series 4-2. In 1910, the Philadelphia A's beat the Chicago Cubs 7-2 to win the World Series at Westside Park in Chicago, taking the series 4-1 for their first championship. In 1920, the Chicago Grand Jury indicts Abe Attell, Hal Chase, and Bill Burns as go-betweens in the Black Sox 1919 World Series baseball scandal. In 1945, American baseball player Jackie Robinson signs a contract with the Montreal Royals, the minor league farm team of the Brooklyn Dodgers. In 1964, future undisputed world heavyweight boxing champion Joe Frazier dominates German Hans Huber for an easy points win in the Olympic heavyweight gold medal in Tokyo. In 1984, Chicago Cubs' Rick Sutcliffe is selected as a unanimous choice as the National League Cy Young. In 1993, defending champion Toronto Blue Jays beat the Philadelphia Phillies 8-6 at the Sky Dome in Toronto to clinch the World Series taking the series 4-2. The MVP is Blue Jays infielder Paul Molitor. In 1996, the New York Yankees set a record recovering from 0-6 in a Baseball World Series game to beat the Braves 8-6 in Game 4 at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. They record their seventh straight postseason road win. In 1997, Les Alexander, owner of the Houston Rockets, buys NHL's Edmonton Oilers. In the year 2000, the Monday Night Miracle is held. Down 30-7 at the end of the third quarter, the New York Jets pull together an improbable comeback with four touchdowns and a field goal in the fourth quarter, eventually defeating the Miami Dolphins 40-37 in overtime. In 2008, Joe Sakic scores his final career goal, number 625, against the Edmonton Oilers. 
In 2019, All-Star point guard Kyrie Irving pours in 50 points, setting a new NBA record for points on debut with a new team, as his Brooklyn Nets go down 127-126 to at home to the Minnesota Timberwolves. And that was my half-assed sports history. Coming up, I'm going to discuss the film Reservoir Dogs, as it premiered on this day in 1992. We'll be black after these messages. Yeah. It's John Black. Bad child on the beat, yeah. Like Betty White. Betty White. This beat, Betty Nice. Ha. Love. I like to keep it low key without the extra hype. See, my name will be known and they gon' spell it right. Bad child on the beat as a lesson, right? Intensify the high, the herb provide when we collectivize. Never spend a minute trying to worry about the when and why. Time is of the essence, either flex or hope for second lives. Only time I'm stepping in the club is when they're checking sides. Sprinkle game like cheddar fries, running with some better guys. They dry as a desert tide, my drive won't let it ride. Dedicated years to this shit, how I'ma let it die? I've tried and been denied, my pride, I kept it high. Never got jack for trying to get it through a skeptic guys yeah get it right this is music for the legend type you got to see it in a separate light so do your thing that's my best advice i'll be on till i'm gone and live long like betty white betty white betty white betty white when you're this good you set the price gave my life to this art and from the start i hear them talking about they golden girls guns and gas go on the words i write hit hard like one to grow on I should get sponsored by Volcom They ain't heard nothing quite like this in so long Peace to the homies on trial that got told on I'm locked in the system like you into the cold wrong Play this while you're doing your burpees, getting your swole on I'm dedicated like an Art Laveau slow song Smoke strong to the point I'm getting tunnel vision But all I ever see is all this money that we missing I think we all agree there ain't no time for indecisions I ain't waiting for the day to come my way like main condition Yeah, trying to get myself clear like I said it right Putting poetry to music, do it every night So do your thing, that's my best advice Cause I'll be on till I'm gone And live long like Betty White And a special mention to those no longer with us. Michael Crichton was an American author and filmmaker. Born John Michael Crichton on October 23, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois, his books have sold over 200 million copies worldwide and over a dozen have been adapted into films. His literary works heavily feature technology and are usually within the science fiction, techno thriller and medical fiction genres. His novels often explore technology and failures of human interaction with it, especially resulting in catastrophes with biotechnology. Many of his novels have medical or scientific underpinnings, reflecting his medical training and scientific background. Crichton received an MD from Harvard Medical School in 1969, but did not practice medicine, choosing to focus on his writing instead. Initially writing under a pseudonym, he eventually wrote 26 novels, including The Andromeda Strain, The Terminal Man, 
The Great Train Robbery, Congo, Sphere, Jurassic Park, Rising Sun, Disclosure, The Lost World, Airframe, Timeline, Prey, State of Fear, and Next. Several novels in various states of completion were published after his death. Crichton was also involved in the film and television industry. In 1973, he wrote and directed Westworld, the first film to utilize 2D computer-generated imagery. He also directed Coma, the first great train robbery, Looker, and Runaway. He was the creator of the television series ER from 1994 to 2009, and several of his novels were adapted into films, most notably the Jurassic Park franchise. According to Crichton's brother Douglas, Crichton was diagnosed with lymphoma in early 2008. In accordance with the private way in which Crichton lived, his cancer was not made public until his death. He was undergoing chemotherapy treatment at the time of his death, and Crichton's physicians and relatives had been expecting him to recover, but he died at age 66 on November 4, 2008. Johnny Carson was an American television host, comedian, writer, and producer. Born John William Carson on October 23, 1925 in Corning, Iowa, he is best known as the host of The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson from 1962 to 1992. Carson received six Primetime Emmy Awards, the Television Academy's 1980 Governor's Award, and a 1985 Peabody Award. He was inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame in 1987. Carson was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1992 and received a Kennedy Center Honor in 1993. During World War II, Carson served in the Navy. After the war, Carson started a career in radio. He moved from radio to TV and followed Jack Parr as the host of the late-night talk show, Tonight. Although his show was already successful by the end of the 60s, during the 1970s, Carson became an American icon and remained so even after his retirement in 1992. He adapted a casual, conversational approach with extensive interaction with guests, an approach pioneered by Arthur Godfrey and previous Tonight Show hosts Steve Allen and Jack Parr, but enhanced by Carson's lightning-quick wit. Former late-night host and friend David Letterman, as well as many others, have cited Carson's influence. He is a cultural icon and widely considered to be the king of late-night TV. On March 19, 1999, Carson suffered a severe heart attack at his home in Malibu, California, and was hospitalized in nearby Santa Monica, where he underwent quadruple bypass surgery. Carson had been a heavy smoker for decades, and in the early days of his tenure on The Tonight Show, often smoked on camera. He smoked four packs of Pall Mall cigarettes a day. It was reported that as early as the mid-1970s, he would repeatedly say, these things are killing me. His younger brother recalled that during their last conversation, Carson kept saying, those damn cigarettes. At 6.50 a.m. Pacific on January 23, 2005, Carson died at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles of respiratory failure arising from emphysema. He was 79. Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 1992, Reservoir Dogs premiered in theaters. Reservoir Dogs is an American crime film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino in his feature-length debut. It stars Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, 
Lawrence Tierney, Michael Madsen, Tarantino, and Edward Bunker as diamond thieves whose heist of a jewelry store goes terribly wrong. Kirk Boss, Randy Brooks, and Stephen Wright also play supporting roles. It incorporates many motifs that have become Tarantino's hallmarks, violent crime, pop culture references, profanity, and nonlinear storytelling. The film is regarded as a classic of independent film and cult films, and was named greatest independent film of all time by Empire. Although controversial at first for its depictions of violence and heavy use of profanity, Reservoir Dogs was generally well received, and the cast being praised by many critics. Despite not being heavily promoted during its theatrical run, the film became a modest success in the United States after grossing $2.8 million against its scant budget. It achieved higher popularity after the success of Tarantino's next film, Pulp Fiction, in 1994. A soundtrack was released featuring songs used in the film, which are mostly from the 1970s. Eight gangsters eat breakfast at a Los Angeles diner. All but the boss, Joe Cabot, and his son, the underboss, nice guy, Eddie Cabot, use aliases. Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Pink. After Mr. Brown finishes rambling about the Madonna song Like a Virgin, the group argues about Pink's policy of not tipping. The gangsters carry out a diamond heist. White flees with Orange, who was shot during the escape and is bleeding severely in the back of White's car. At one of Joe's warehouses, White and Orange rendezvous with Pink, who believes that the job was a setup and that the police were waiting for them. White informs him that Brown is dead, Blue and Blonde are missing, and Blonde murdered several civilians during the heist. White is furious that Joe, his old friend, would employ Blonde, whom he describes as a psychopath. Pink has hidden the diamonds nearby. He argues with White over whether to get medical attention for Orange, and the pair draw guns at each other. They stand down when Blonde arrives with a kidnapped policeman, Marvin Nash. Sometime earlier, Blonde meets with the Cabots, having completed a four-year jail sentence. To reward him for not having given Joe's name to the authorities for a lighter sentence, they offer him a no-show job. Blonde insists that he wants to get back to real work, and they recruit him for the heist. In the present, White and Pink beat Nash for information. Eddie arrives and orders them to retrieve the diamonds and ditch the getaway vehicles, leaving Blonde in charge of Nash and Orange. Nash denies knowledge, but Blonde ignores him and resumes the torture, cutting off Nash's ear with a straight razor. He prepares to set him on fire, but Orange shoots him dead. Orange reveals to Nash that he is an undercover police officer and that the police will arrive soon. When Eddie, Pink, and White return, Orange tries to convince them that Blonde planned to kill them all and steal the diamonds for himself. Eddie impulsively kills Nash and accuses Orange of lying, since Blonde was loyal to his father. Joe arrives with news that the police have killed Blue. He is about to execute Orange, whom he suspects is the traitor behind the setup, but White intervenes and holds Joe at gunpoint, insisting that Orange is not an undercover cop. Eddie aims at White, creating a Mexican standoff. All three fire, both Cabots are killed, and White and Orange are hit. Pink, the only uninjured person, takes the diamonds and flees, but is apprehended by the police outside. As White cradles the dying Orange in his arms, Orange confesses that he is an undercover officer. White presses his gun to Orange's head. The police storm the warehouse and order White to drop his gun. Gunshots sound, and White collapses. 
Quentin Tarantino had been working at Video Archives, a video store in Manhattan Beach, California, and originally planned to shoot the film with his friends on a budget of $30,000 in a 16mm black and white format with producer Lawrence Bender playing a police officer chasing Mr. Pink. Bender gave the script to his acting teacher, whose wife gave the script to Harvey Keitel. Keitel liked it enough to sign as a co-producer so Tarantino and Bender would have an easier job finding funding. With his assistance, they raised $1.5 million. Keitel also paid for Tarantino and Bender to host casting sessions in New York, where the duo found Steve Buscemi, Michael Madsen, and Tim Roth. John Cryer was asked to audition for the role of Mr. Pink, but he backed out at the last minute. Tim Roth's agents originally wanted him to be Mr. Pink or Mr. Blonde, but he preferred Mr. Orange because he would be an English actor pretending to be an American playing a cop pretending to be a robber. Reservoir Dogs was, according to Tarantino, influenced by Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Tarantino said, I didn't go out my way to do a ripoff of The Killing, but I did think of it as my killing, my take on that kind of heist movie. The film's plot was also inspired by the 1952 film Kansas City Confidential. Additionally, Joseph H. Lewis's 1955 film The Big Combo and Sergio Corbucci's 1966 spaghetti western Django inspired the scene where a police officer is tortured in a chair. Tarantino has denied that he plagiarized with Reservoir Dogs and instead said that he does homages. Having the main characters named after colors like Mr. Pink, White, and Brown, etc. was first seen in the 1974 film The Taking of Pelham 123. The film also contains key elements similar to those found in Ringo Lamb's 1987 film City on Fire. Tarantino praised the film City on Fire and mentioned it as a major influence. The warehouse scenes were filmed in an unused mortuary filled with coffins, funeral equipment, embalming fluid, and a hearse. Mr. Orange's apartment was a room on the second floor of the mortuary, dressed to look like living quarters. The building has since been demolished. Tarantino's decision not to film the diamond robbery was twofold, for budgetary reasons and to keep the details of the heist ambiguous. By not showing the robbery and having the characters describe it, Tarantino explained the film is allowed to be about other things, similar to the way in which the robbery in Glengarry Glen Ross and its film adaptation is discussed, described, and debated, but never shown. Tarantino compared the technique to the work of a novelist and said he wanted the film to be about something not seen and to play with a real time clock as opposed to a movie clock ticking. Reservoir Dogs is regarded as an important and influential milestone of independent filmmaking. The Rotten Tomatoes website reads, Thrumming with intelligence and energy, Reservoir Dogs opens Quentin Tarantino's filmmaking career with hard-hitting style. Vincent Camby of the New York Times enjoyed the cast and the usage of nonlinear storytelling. He similarly complimented Tarantino's directing and liked the fact that he did not often use close-ups in the film. Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times also enjoyed the film and the acting, particularly that of Buscemi, Tierney, and Madsen, and said Tarantino's palpable enthusiasm, his unapologetic passion for what he's created, reinvigorates this plot and mayhem aside, makes it involving for longer than you might suspect. Critic James Berardinelli was of similar opinion. He complimented both the cast and Tarantino's dialogue writing abilities. 
Hal Henson of the Washington Post was also enthusiastic about the cast, complimenting the film on its deadpan sense of humor. Reservoir Dogs has often been seen as a prominent film in terms of on-screen violence. J.P. Talat compared Reservoir Dogs to classic caper noir films and points out the irony in its ending scenes. Mark Irwin also made the connection between Reservoir Dogs and classic American noir. Carolyn Jewers called Reservoir Dogs a fugile epic and paralleled the color pseudonyms to color names of medieval knights. Critics have observed parallels between Reservoir Dogs and other films. For its non-linear storyline, Reservoir Dogs has often been compared to Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. Critic John Hartle compared the ear-cutting scene to the shower murder scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Tarantino to David Lynch. He furthermore explored parallels between Reservoir Dogs and Glengarry Glen Ross. Todd McCarthy, who called the film undeniably impressive, was of the opinion that it was influenced by Mean Streets, Goodfellas, and Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. After this film, Tarantino himself was also compared to Martin Scorsese, Sam Peckinpah, John Singleton, Gus Van Zandt, and Abel Ferreira. A frequently cited comparison has been to Tarantino's second and more successful film, Pulp Fiction, especially since the majority of audiences saw Reservoir Dogs after the success of Pulp Fiction. Comparisons have been made regarding the black humor in both films, the theme of accidents, and more concretely, the style of dialogue and narrative that Tarantino incorporates into both films. Specifically, the relationship between white people and black people plays a big part in the films. Though underplayed in Reservoir Dogs, Stanley Crouch of the New York Times compared the way white criminals speak of black people in Reservoir Dogs to the way they are spoken of in Scorsese's Mean Streets and Goodfellas. Crouch observed the way black people are looked down upon in Reservoir Dogs, but also the way that the criminals accuse each other of verbally imitating black men and the character's apparent sexual attraction to black actress Pam Greer. In February 2012, as part of an ongoing series of live dramatic readings of film scripts being staged with the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, director Jason Reitman cast black actors in the original white cast. Lawrence Fishburne as Mr. White, Terrence Howard as Mr. Blonde, Anthony Mackie as Mr. Pink, Cuba Gooding Jr. as Mr. Orange, Chai McBride as Joe Cabot, Anthony Anderson as Nice Guy Eddie, Common as both Mr. Brown and Officer Nash, and Patton Oswald as Holdaway, the mentor cop who was originally played by Randy Brooks, the only black actor in the film. Critic Elvis Mitchell suggested that Reitman's version of the script was taking the source material back to its roots since the characters all sound like black dudes. Happy Anniversary. Happy 30th Anniversary, Reservoir Dogs. Thank you, Quentin Tarantino. In today's birthdays for October 23rd, turning 34 today is American basketball player Jordan Crawford. Happy 37th birthday to American singer, songwriter, and producer, Miguel. Turning 41 is American actor and producer, Jackie Long. Turning 46 is Canadian-American actor and producer, Ryan Reynolds. American basketball player, Keith Van Horn, turns 47 today. Also 47 is American sportscaster, Michelle Beadle. 
Virgin Islander American actress Jasmine St. Clair turns 50. American football player and coach Bill O'Brien turns 53 today. Good old booty chin. American baseball player and sportscaster Al Leiter turns 57. American bass player and songwriter Robert Sergio turns 58 today. American football player, sportscaster, and drummer Doug Flutie turns 60. Both turning 63 are American singer, songwriter, comedian, and actor Weird Al Yankovic, as well as American actor, director, producer, and screenwriter Sam Raimi. American activist, author, and academic Michael Eric Dyson turns 64. American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and actor Dwight Yoakam turns 66. Taiwanese American director, producer, and screenwriter Ang Lee turns 68 today. And turning 82 years old today is Brazilian footballer and actor Pele. That wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. As always, check out Happened in the 90s with me and Matt G every Thursday, Crushgasm with Kendra on Wednesdays, B3F Podcast with Joey and Steve, and Don't Worry, Be Movie with Amanda and Wade. Y'all be cool. Go Cowboys. Go Buckeyes. Peace.